right, if you would, open your Bible to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read those opening verses from Daniel chapter 1, and then we're going to take a journey from Genesis all the way out to Revelation and end in Revelation chapter 12 in a little bit, but we want to get used to opening to the book of Daniel because this is the second week of a sermon series that we don't know how long it's going to take. We're just going to take our time going through the book of Daniel. We do know that Daniel chapter 1 is going to take four weeks. We got started last week thinking about this idea of exile. What does it mean to live in exile? This week, we're going to look at the theme of Babylon. Uh, And another way of saying Babylon is to think about the word empire. And so we're going to think about that theme. And then next couple of weeks, pick up with God's faithfulness and how we respond to God's faithfulness. And just building off that time of prayer that we just had there, uh, that, that Jaron led us in, next week, next Sunday morning, we are, by unanimous uh, recommendation from the personnel committee, uh, going to bring a candidate before you in view of a call for our student pastor position. We haven't released this person's name because we live, obviously, in a world of social media, and you're always trying to think about when the right time is for something to get this out, because when his name goes out, he wants to have been able to tell his youth and, and his leaders, and we're trying to coordinate that. So later this week, you will hear from us uh, about who this person is, and then next Sunday morning, he'll be here to share his testimony in both of our worship services. Saturday night, he's gonna spend time with our students and their parents and volunteers, and so all of that is developing this week, so we want you to, to be aware of that. One, actually two more announcements before we get started, but these are both pertinent just to life as a church. Uh, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, we are hosting the memorial service for Paula Meyer, and Jeff caught me out in the hallway and just asked me to remind the church family uh, If you're able to be here, just to love on the family and talk about a lady who has impacted so many people, just a legacy of faith that that goes so wide and and develops over so many generations. And so tomorrow morning here at Emmaus, we will be having that memorial service. So we want you to know about that, coming together as a church family around around that family. Also, if you are a guest of ours, every few months, we do a free lunch called Discover Emmaus. If you want to know kind of the past of Emmaus and also the future, sort of where we're going as a church, you have questions you would like to ask about getting involved, you want to meet the church staff, next Sunday is the opportunity to do that. So if you're a guest of ours and you're looking for a chance to take a next step, you are not signing up for anything if you come to this lunch, you're not committing yourself to anything long term, this is just a really good next step to get information on what it looks like to get to know the church more and get involved. If you're interested in attending that lunch, if you would just take one of those cards in the seat back and write lunch on it and put your name and maybe a little contact information, and put it in one of these offering boxes, these black boxes as you exit, we'll pick those up and know that you're coming. So. We would love for you to be a part of that lunch. It's a great opportunity to get connected and kind of find out what's going on at Emmaus. So that's coming up next week. We have a lot going on this next weekend, uh, and then it just gains momentum from there going into the summer. So it's going to be a lot of fun. But right now, what we have in front of us is Daniel chapter 1, and that's what we want to focus on right now. So let's go there. Daniel chapter 1, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me ask you to think about something this morning. Think about the way that a place name or a location name causes certain emotions to rise up in in your life. So let's just practice with Texas. When you hear Texas, what rises up in your, uh, in your mind? Like a common enemy? Uh, some of you, really good emotions rise up in your life, which I don't understand how that works, but I know some of you, you hear Texas and you think of home or you have good memories that, that come from Texas. When I talked about last week, where you're from, what your home is really all about. I grew up in the southwest part of Oklahoma in that little community called Central High. Funny enough, this morning, uh, a little bit ago, ran into uh, a guy from college who grew up in a little town called Velma. When we grew up in Central High, when we heard Velma, it wasn't the happiest of thoughts that, that came, to, came to our mind. You think about those rival high schools. In, in Central High and Velma, we had this other rival high school that was called Bray, the Bray Doyle Donkeys. I mean, imagine your rival high school are the donkeys. And so when, when you think about Bray, like just nothing positive comes to the mind. Uh, when, when Amanda and I had our first child, and you go through those difficult parent conversations of how you're going to name this particular child, uh, Amanda had in mind a name that was a wonderful name, but it was the name of a street in Lawton that nobody wanted to go down. And every time I heard that name, all I could think about was this area in Lawton. I was like, I can't call my kid that over and over and over again because all the wrong thoughts are going to come to my mind when I hear that name. Here's what's interesting about this. Look in your Bible in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. There, at the end of verse 2, there's a very interesting reference that happens there. When Nebuchadnezzar is taking the people away, it says he brought them, and specifically these vessels, but it's going to apply to the people as well. He brought them to the land of Shinar. Now, I realize that that is a phrase in the book of Daniel that we could just read past really quickly, and it seems like a random place reference. But what I want to show you this morning is that phrase is not random. In fact, what is happening with the fact that the people are taken into exile to Shinar, it hyperlinks together all of these themes that run throughout the book of the Bible. And when we see what's going on with this reference to Shinar, it's going to open up more of what it, God is doing through the book of Daniel. 
Shinar, I know the map's a little difficult to see, but what is happening here, Shinar is another reference to Babylon, and it's in what we would consider as the southeastern part of modern-day Iraq. And so these exiles are taken from the Promised Land, they're taken from Jerusalem, and they can't cut straight across the desert, so they kind of have to go in this arcing path that ultimately takes them down to this area that we would understand as southeastern Iraq. Now, here's the question we have to ask this morning. Why in the world does it matter that they were taken into exile to Shinar? We're going to start in Genesis and go on this path. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation, all the good things that God is doing in, in establishing his land. And then you get Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Genesis 3, we have this character introduced in the story, the one that is going to come and bring temptation, that's going to bring deception, that's going to become the accuser and the enemy of the people of God. The serpent is introduced into the story. Adam and Eve, instead of speaking to the animals and giving them name, listen to the animal and their hearts are deceived and they lose track of what it means to trust in God's promises and his word, listen and rebel against the way of God. What happens in verse 23? Verse 23, the Lord God sent the man out. Remember, that's the idea of exile. The very first exile happens in Genesis 3 as the people don't trust God and they're sent out of the promised land. They're sent out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Verse 24, what happens? God drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. With the introduction of the serpent and the introduction of sin into the story, the people are sent east, east of Eden, living away from the presence of God, living outside of the promised land. The question is, what happens when they get there? Well, Genesis chapter 4, you find Cain killing his brother Abel. And you get down to verse 16, and it says, after this happens, and God promises to still watch over Cain, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. More sin, more distance from the presence of God. There's a general progression of the people are moving further and further, further from the presence of the Lord. Went away from the presence of the Lord, and he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Here's something interesting. The word Nod there means wandering. <laughs> So it's meant to be a humorous, ironic idea that he tries to settle down, but he's always wandering around. He's looking for a place of stability, but he can't find it because he's gone away from the presence of God. How many people in the world look for stability away from the presence of God, and they can't find it? And they're just constantly searching, constantly wondering. So Cain goes east of Eden. How does he end up in that situation? It's because of violence. And we find in the very next verse in, in Genesis 4 that he becomes a city builder. So he goes away and he's trying to establish an identity. He's trying to find stability. So he begins to build these cities. Now there's another character that's introduced in Genesis chapter 4. And it's the character of Lamech. Look down in verse 23 and 24. Genesis chapter 4 verses 23 and 24. It says, now Lamech said to his two wives, let me find the verse in front of me, said to his wives, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, 
then Lamech's is 77-fold. Here, you have the figure who is the seventh descendant down from Adam. We know in the book of Genesis, these numbers have such meaning behind them. Seven is this idea of totality, of, of completion. Adam's sin is reaching a form of completion here with Lamech being the seventh descendant coming down. What do you find from Lamech? He doesn't have one wife. He's the first figure in Scripture we find with two wives that he has taken upon himself to say, I'm going to go outside of God's boundaries. God says a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. I'll just take two of those. So he takes two wives, and what does he do? He kills not only his brother, but it says he kills a young man. So now his violence is escalating because it's not just someone who's the same age of him. He's reaching out and killing a young man. And what's he doing? He's bragging about his killing. He's transgressed the meaning of marriage. He's taken on two wives. He's gone after someone who is younger than him, and he's bragging about his violence. Now, what do we find out from Lamech is the situation just continues to get worse. And so what does the Lord do? He brings a flood because the blood of the people is crying out from the ground. He brings the flood and he brings this cleansing of the land, but things still don't get better. And you get Noah and his three sons, and you get to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is one of those places in Scripture it's really easy to skip over because you're like, oh my goodness, another boring list of names. <laughs> every time you read the Bible, I'd say, well, maybe not every time, almost every time in Scripture, when you run into a passage of Scripture and it feels like a boring list of names, let that trigger something for you that there's something really important going on right here. Because just about every time in the Bible when you run into a boring list of names, it is there for a very, very important reason. Genesis chapter 10 gives us a map of the nations at this time that have come after the flood and are preparing for the coming of Abraham. Can you guess how many nations are represented in Genesis chapter 10? It's 70. 70 nations are given in Genesis chapter 10. 7 times 10 equals 70. It's the perfect number of completion. That this is a picture of all the people here. So there are 70 people that are represented here. 70 nations. Later on in the Bible story, when Jacob goes down into Egypt to go after his son Joseph, do you know how many people go into Egypt with Jacob? Exactly 70. That God is always taking care of the completion of his people. That you have 70 nations represented here in Genesis chapter 10. And one reference that we have is to Noah's son Ham, who then gave birth to Cush, who then, it says in Genesis 10, 6, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. When you see there, and if you want to make a note in your journal or in your Bible, when you see the reference mighty man, make a reference or a note that says Genesis chapter 6. Because Genesis chapter 6 is that crazy story 
where the sons of God, some type of angelic being, is coming together with these daughters of, of mankind, and there's a crossing of boundaries, and what comes of this is a group of people called the Gibberim, or, or the mighty men, those who are going to show their own power against the way of God. And so you have this reference here, here comes Nimrod. Now if the name Nimrod sounds familiar to you, it may be because you were called that at some point uh, by, by someone, uh, Nimrod is made famous by the Bugs Bunny uh, cartoon that they call Elmer Fudd uh, a Nimrod. Now what's funny about that is Elmer Fudd, what is he always doing? He's hunting. He's hunting. Here, Nimrod is a mighty hunter, and he becomes known as this great figure. And so if someone wanted to celebrate or brag, they would say, like, Nimrod. So, so you go out hunting this year? and you get, you get a great kill, you just scream like Nimrod, you know, or you're playing basketball and you make a three-pointer and you run down the floor like Nimrod, or you go shopping and you find a great deal and you scream in the aisle like Nimrod. Like it was a way to celebrate greatness. Like what could go wrong with this? What could possibly go wrong with this? Look in verse 10. Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. What happens there? It says the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. Your first reference to Shinar in the Bible comes here in Genesis chapter 10, and it's Nimrod building this kingdom, building this empire there in Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Well, that triggers all kinds of Bible ideas for us at this point. And then, between Nineveh and Cala, which is the great city. Who does Nimrod become? He becomes the ultimate empire builder. He becomes the first to establish these great kingdoms. He has all this worldly power, and he establishes this kingdom there at Babel. He builds this great city which then takes us into Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember what happens in Genesis chapter 11? Verse one, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east in this eastern region, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Think about how many Bible ideas are coming together. Remember Cain, who was sent into the east and tried to find a way to settle in this area? Here comes this group of people. They're trying to settle in the plains of Shinar. I wonder what they're going to do when they get there. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for barter, for, for mortar. Then they said in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Now that phrase wouldn't mean a whole lot had we not seen everything that was going on from Genesis 1 through 10. Here is another city building group coming together. We're going to build a city and we are going to build a tower with its top in the heavens. The way the language is working there is they are building a tower with its head in the sky. In Daniel chapter 2, in the plains of Shinar, do you know what we're going to find? We're going to find a king building a tower that's head reaches into the sky. That building of a tower 
here in Genesis 11 is a preview of what's going to happen in Daniel chapter 2. They're going to build this tower. And for what purpose are they going to build this tower that reaches into the sky? Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They're going to build a city. They're going to build a tower. They're going to build an empire to make a name for themselves, not bring glory to God's name. We're going to live for ourselves for our own purposes. This Tower of Babel thread, it runs all throughout the Bible. Uh, think about the role of Egypt and, and Pharaoh. And think as well, when we think of Egypt and, and symbols of Egypt, one of the main symbols of Egypt and Pharaoh's power is the serpent. What's going on there? That's connecting right back to Genesis chapter 3. The role of the serpent in Genesis 3 going right through the power that Egypt held, the power of death and sin that, that happened there, the role of Pharaoh. Uh, one of our young moms sent me a text message a few weeks ago, and she was bragging on our Sunday school teachers we have for kids at Emmaus, just how much these kids learn and how much they absor absorb in class. And apparently that morning in class, the kids have been learning about Pharaoh Except the mom admitted we probably watched too many Marvel movies at home because on the way home, instead of referencing Pharaoh, the little girl kept referencing Thanos. And so she was telling the Bible story, but she kept saying Thanos instead of Pharaoh. And so she said they got all the right information, just kind of substituted the wrong name in there for Pharaoh and started using Thanos. That's not the worst comparison when you think about the way all this works together and this, this reference of power. This idea that runs through even something like the story of Goliath. Think about a great figure who was so tall that his head reached into the sky. That's the Goliath figure, the representation of Goliath of this empire power. Think about the role of Assyria, the first place where the northern kingdom, Israel, was taken into exile. The power of Babylon that happens in the scripture. That leading to the power of Greece and how much power the Greek kingdom had over the ancient world and Alexander the Great. And that leads where? To Rome. The power of Rome is the situation that Jesus is born into. When you see Rome in the New Testament, that is connecting back to Genesis 3. That's connecting back to the reference to Babylon. That's connecting back to all these themes of worldly kingdom and power you see. And it takes you to a place like 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. When Peter writes his letter, he references the exiles and the dispersion, those who have been scattered. But watch at the end of 1 Peter, in chapter 5, where he talks about where he's writing from. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.13, She, meaning the church, who is at Babylon. Now where is Peter when he's writing this letter? He's at Rome, but he refers it as Babylon. The one who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Even in Peter's time of the New Testament, instead of saying Rome, he says Babylon because everything that Babylon represents, Rome is carrying out. This is where something like Revelation 18 in your Bible is so helpful. Revelation 18, 2 and 3, what's Babylon all about? 
Revelation 18, 2 and 3, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Well, that's not surprising to us because we know how this thing got started back in Genesis chapter 3. She's a dwelling place for demons. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. What do we know about Babylon, a a place of sexual immorality, of crossing boundaries. Why do we know that? We remember Lamech, who said, I don't just want one wife, I'm going to take two wives, and I'm going to brag about the power that I have. Revelation 18.3, the second half of that verse, the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. Uh, This language that we use in politics sometimes of getting in bed with someone, that's exactly what's going on here, this idea of committing immorality with a worldly kingdom in order to gain power. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Now why does that matter? Why would we go Genesis to Revelation with this theme? Where do Daniel and his friends find themselves? They find themselves in Babylon. Where do each of us find ourselves living as the people of God? In exile, in Babylon. What does Babylon represent? Babylon represents empire. Babylon represents the human kingdoms of this world. What do you find in Scripture in reference to Babylon, in reference to the empires of the world? Well, you find violence and chaos you find power, the desire for power in politics and economics and doing whatever it takes, honestly, to get that power in, in politics and economics. You find sexual immorality and greed, seeking to make our name great, <laughs> to be impressive and to take away from God's glory. And friends, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of the principalities of this dark age. When we think about Babylon, we are not just thinking about material items, material things. We are talking about dark spiritual forces at work in the world to build up worldly kingdoms that are opposed to the way of God. And if you're ever tempted in this Daniel study to think, man, I'm glad I don't live in Babylon, can I just tell you, you do. You do. We all do. And frankly, Babylon lives in our pocket. (laughs) You know, we carry Babylon with us. All the time. We live in the midst of a world in which you're called to indulge yourself, to build up your human power, to build up your worldly kingdom, to do all these things opposed to the way of God. And the question we have to ask is if we live in Babylon, if this is the story of Scripture, if this is the story of Daniel, how do we respond to that? Like, Pastor, I, I realize, you know. I put some of these pieces together and I recognize this is the nature of our world. How do we respond to that? This is where Revelation 12 is so helpful. Revelation 12 gives us a picture of what we know to be true. Revelation 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down. Not might be thrown down, will thrown down. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12.10, John cries out, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. 
This is the reality which leads us to verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their own lives, even unto death. What is our calling as people who live in Babylon? A Babylon that started in Genesis 3, that carries forward to the very final pages of the Bible, as those who study the book of Daniel and think, God, how do I live in this world? How do I respond to this? You respond with the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. Think about what it means there that Jesus brings victory by the blood of the Lamb. In Babylon, how do you win? By shedding someone else's blood. In the story of Jesus, where does victory come? He gave his own blood. In Babylon, you take from others. In the story of Jesus, he gave his life for us. The story of the blood of the lamb says, I don't come with anything I can bring. I don't come to gain life for myself. I realize that Jesus did for me what only he could do, what I could never do for myself. And so where is our hope found living in Babylon? Not by overcoming Babylon with worldly power. It's by pleading the blood of the lamb. Our hope to experience salvation and eternal life and full life in this world is to say together our only hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let us hold on to nothing else. And in the process, when we know that to be true, we declare that as the word of our testimony, a testimony that endures, a testimony that says to the world, Jesus is better than any kingdom of this world. A testimony that says to the world, I know where my hope is found. I know where true life is found. I know where eternal security is found. And it is not in any kingdom of Babylon. Anything that this world could offer, anything that we could try to build up for ourselves, any hope that we would put in this world will never last. But we have one who is sure and steady. We have one who has defeated sin and death. We have one who rules eternally as Lord of the entire universe. Jesus is better than anything this world could ever offer. And so when we find ourselves in the book of Daniel and find ourselves thinking, how do we live in Babylon? Friends, we live in Babylon as those who plead the blood of the Lamb and as those who say the word of our testimony will be that Jesus is better. And I would like to pray that over you. I would pray that that would be your hope. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing that together. Let's pray together. Father, we know that when we're reading through the Bible and we see place names or we see long lists of names, God, it's easy to discount those and, and just move on. But God, your word is so powerful. And the unity of the Bible from beginning to end is so beautiful, the way that all the pieces fit together, the way we see your plan at work. God, remind us this morning, as we're together praying for one another, singing with one another, God, remind us that the story of Scripture does not begin with Babylon. It begins with your creation. And the story doesn't end with Babylon. It ends with your new creation. But in this in-between time, God, we live in a world that's just full of Babylon. 
We live in a world that's opposed to you. We live in a world where we're taught to build our own kingdoms, to put our hope in things that won't last. And God, we gather together this morning to say that Jesus is better, that he has given his blood to cover our sin, that he rose from the dead so we don't have to live in fear of death. God, we live in a world where people do suffer and there is death and we do mourn with one another, but God, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. We have great hope because of Jesus and we want to testify to that every day through how we speak and how we live And so, God, we gather together this morning to say that that is what we believe. That is what we believe to be true. And, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.